Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came home. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Springer. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Does someone We're that do, do this again? Does huh? Someone do that for you everywhere you go, Jerry. Just announce <laughs> as you come into a room, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, I have that attached to my alarm clock. So in the morning, <laughs> I wake up to ladies and gentlemen. Please make welcome. Jerry Mickey has to stand up and go like this. Mickey's like, hey. I am not chanting again. Go to get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way. Uh, we're going to have Jerry's thought of the week here in a second. And also I want to mention, we've got a guy named Cole Chaney from Eastern Kentucky. Hey, and uh, he is, he was on last week and we begged him to come back and do another song. He agreed. And uh, you got to stick around for this because this guy's, yeah, we, we think he is the real he deal. Really yeah, is. He's the and, real and deal. We think he's yeah. on, uh, and I've been checking out some of his numbers and he's got, Got a lot of people listening to him, and uh, he's just damn good. And uh, so we're going to talk with him in a few minutes. Uh, uh, Jerry, what has caught yes. your interest this week? We always look forward to your thoughts of the week. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, beyond talk about the pandemic and what we can do about it, political discourse over these past few years is now increasingly dominated by the not-so-hypothetical question is American democracy dying? Or perhaps of more value to us now, assuming you want to prevent this from happening, is to make ourselves aware of the process. How do democracies die? Well, I can tell you this. Our 250-year experiment with self-government will not die because some tyrant will launch a nuke before flooding what's left of our land with foreign troops demanding and securing the unconditional surrender of the remaining American people. No, the idea America will not evaporate in a mushroom cloud. It will die if it does, because we don't really care enough to pay attention, to notice its slow erosion. We will, as we have been, we will continue to ignore the warning signs, each step toward authoritarianism rationalized away with a dismissive wave of the hand. Oh, it's no big deal. It'll pass. It's politics as usual, a momentary disturbance. This is America. We're too strong to crumble. Is this just wishful thinking? Will our democracy survive simply because it has in the past? What are these slow but inevitable steps toward authoritarianism that we're ignoring? History shows us there are several. The most obvious one toward uh, putting the last nail in the coffin of democracy is to undermine the legitimacy of elections by refusing to accept credible electoral results. Stop the steal. The election was stolen or its rallying cries. That, of course, couldn't have come about without first undermining the credibility of a free, independent press. The media is the enemy, fake news, Fox News, without which Trump's big lie could never have gained traction. Then they're subverting the independence of our judicial system, 
stopping the constitutional right of Obama to make a Supreme Court appointment and then ramming through the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett in the last weeks of Trump's presidency, thereby guaranteeing the politicization of the Supreme Court, securing it as an arm of the right wing Republican Party, contaminate the judicial system, undermine the free press, gerrymander the Congress so that all the branches of government will be Republican, even though only once in the last 34 years has the Republican candidate for president received more votes from the American people than the Democrat, only once in the last 34 years. And eventually have the president and his party encourage, condone, and refuse to condemn or punish violence in pursuance of their right to stay in power, or their aim to stay in power, I should say. That is how democracies die. And what of these steps have we not complacently observed these last few years? How did this come to be? And why now? We've had evil, racist, anti-American leaders before, but how come none rose to the presidency before Trump? Well, there are too many reasons to cover in just one podcast, but let me speak of one. As I said, we've had charismatic right-wing fascist-leaning leaders in America before. Philip Roth's novel, Plot Against America, in a sense outlined how circumstances in our country prior to World War II might have turned out. Charles Lindbergh, the immensely popular aviator thrilled the nation, indeed the world, when he became the first to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean back in 1927. His popularity in America was unmatched. He then turned that pop culture popularity into a political cause, becoming an avowed advocate for American isolationism with strong ties to Hitler. There was much talk in Republican circles and in the press that he may run against FDR in 1940. Remember, this was Roosevelt's seeking an unprecedented third term, so there was much controversy whether he should run again anyway. So far, this, what I have just said, was all true. Now, where Philip Roth's novel took this reality is that he had Lindbergh actually running and beating Roosevelt in 1940. So we would have wound up with a Nazi supporting president and how different would World War II have turned out with America on the side of Hitler. Though a novel, all of this was entirely possible if Lindbergh would have run. And it's not just Lindbergh in our past. There was also Louisiana's Kingfish, Huey Long, a right winger who also was a threat to Roosevelt before he was assassinated in 1935. Father Coughlin, an anti-Semitic racist, immensely popular personality who dominated the radio airwaves. Remember, there was no TV back then. Spouting the hatred we now get from Fox News. Then we had Senator Joe McCarthy and all the lives and careers he destroyed and George Wallace and his avowed racism. And yet, none of these fascist leading personalities managed to turn their popularity into the presidency. 
Why is that? What saved us? I suggest the answer is pretty basic. Political parties. For all the complaints about the old political parties we had, Republicans and Democrats, the fact is they served a necessary function in our democracy. They were the gatekeepers. They, throughout history, have always managed to keep the crazies, those who would dismantle our democracy, they managed to keep these guys from ultimately gaining the nomination of their party. The reason was simple. With only two national parties, neither one could afford to be exclusively regional or to the far left or far right and still have any hope of winning the general election. Each party was forced, in a sense, to be a big tent, including points of view from every direction. Simply put, they were forced to appeal to the middle. Too far left or too far right, there weren't enough votes to win. And that system guaranteed that no fascist or totally right-wing candidate would party leaders who wanted to win beyond anything ever put before the voters in November. That's what the two major political parties could do. They guaranteed moderation. So what happened? How did we get Trump and suddenly see our entire democracy threatened? I would argue it's because of the demise of our political parties. And how did that happen? Technology. Over the past 20 years, with the rise of social media, cell phones, Twitter and the like, you no longer needed the blessing or endorsement of a political party. A candidate can organize, raise money, build a following on his or her own, which means, of course, that even though back in 2016, the Republican Party initially wanted nothing to do with Trump, he didn't need them and still doesn't. Someone like him can grab the momentum anyway, grab the nomination anyway. The gatekeepers are gone. The gates are wide open. And as a nation, we the voters remain the last line of defense against those who seek to destroy our democracy. As we've watched the demise of the Republican Party and can no longer uh, um, count on it keeping keeps conservatism respectable, willing to respect our constitution, our country, and its people, our task as patriotic Americans is to make sure this year that everyone's right to vote is protected, that no hurdles or obstacles are placed in people's way, even if such a circumstance requires Congress to eliminate or modify the filibuster so that such legislation can pass. We can no longer rely <coughs> on politicians or political parties alone to protect us. We private citizens have to join the battle. Regardless of what legislation is passed, <coughs> excuse me, or not passed, don't let anyone or anything stop you from voting. If the Democratic Party wants to be relevant again over the next 10 months, make sure every potential voter is identified in every congressional district in America. 
get them registered, get them to the polls or by mail or in person early, get everyone to vote. Because it's very basic, as we saw in Georgia, if everyone votes, the anti-democracy folks and the party that supports them cannot win. This is the one task that can make the Democratic Party relevant again. It is the only thing <laughs> that can make democracy survive. Yeah, very insightful, Jerry. Good job. Um, Class dismissed. No, 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 no. That's a good take. That's a good take. Yeah. And we're going to have uh, Cole Cheney on here in a few minutes. But I wanted to mention something that's happening in Cincinnati on a totally different topic. Uh, and that is jumping back to, uh, it seems like it was about 2002, the Boston Globe. And this became a movie, by the great movie. I think it was a, like a Netflix movie. Um, that was probably in the theaters as well about the priest abuse scandal in the Catholic Church that has happened across not only America, but around the world, all over the world. And it's a horrible story. And I say this as a person raised as a Roman Catholic. It's about as bad as it gets. You have men who are in the Catholic Church is totally male-dominated. And Megan, you have a Catholic background as well, so you know this history as well as I do. And lots of, not, not all Catholic priests, of course, but a shocking segment abuse young boys. That was mainly the story. There were some guys that abused young girls, but the, it was a lot of, a lot of boys. Uh, a febophilia, it's called. Pedophilia is if they're real little. This is more like teenage boys, prepubescent boys. And so the Boston Globe did a series. <clears throat> then, then we learned that it was happening all over the country, including in Cincinnati. I was doing a talk show on a local radio station at the time, and I started to call the Archdiocese in Cincinnati after I read the Boston stories. And I started to ask questions of the Archdiocese in Cincinnati. Trust me, I was freaking stunned when I called their PR person one day and said, hey, I've written the Boston stories. Uh-huh. Has, <laughs> has it happened in Cincinnati? Long pause, Jerry and Megan. And I thought, holy, holy shit. Has it happened in Cincinnati? Uh, well, what do you mean, Gene? And I said, well, have there been any men who are priests who are or have been accused of molesting children? Long pause. This is on the phone. Yes. Oh, my God. But that's all the dude said was, yes. He wasn't going to help me. Nothing was going to come easily. How many? Seven. What happened to them? Various things, but most of them were sent to New Mexico. Why New Mexico? There is a place, there, is a place there that does therapy for these people. Oh, really? And did they ever get reassigned? Long pause. Yes. Oh, my God. So this was the opening of the box in Cincinnati. I went on the radio, Jerry and Megan, that night, WDBZ, the buzz of Cincinnati, 
Well, frankly, yeah. I went ape shit over. This. Wow. I went ape shit over this. I went on the radio that night and I told all of this. Then that next day, I thought, because no one was going to help me or any anybody else get this. So you, I had to, so I wrote a list of questions that I hoped were airtight. And that if this one came up a yes, then follow up with this one. I called back. I asked those questions. I got more information, more specific information. And some were they sent to the prosecutor. Obviously, that's where you send them. No. Why not? <clears throat> got an answer. What parishes did you send them off to? I was able to get some information and some was protected that I couldn't get. So then I called, went on the air that night, did it again next day. And by the way, my radio show, because it was the only nighttime hot topic show in Cincinnati, all the TV stations had, Jerry, you work forever in, at Channel 5 in Cincinnati. You were the lead anchor there. They'd have stuff on in the background. They're monitors, right? Oh, You're yeah. monitoring other TV yeah. stations. If there's a hot radio sure. show on with a hot topic anyway, you got that on. Picking up info. On the third day, I called with more questions, and the PR guy said, "Tell you what, Gene, I'm going to call you back." He would. He would. I would ask questions. He would leave. He would go talk to the archbishop, and who wouldn't talk to me, and then would come back and answer the questions. So on the third day, he said, "I'm going to call you back." He called back and said, "There's a news conference with the archbishop at four. He told me where I went." It was filled with media and then it was on. So then Cincinnati's story exploded. And then after that, Chicago, well, I don't say that we were the second, but every, all these cities around the country exploded. Okay. Fast forward to today. A friend of mine, his name is Michael DeFrancesco and he is a playwright. And he has a master's degree in theater arts from the University of Cincinnati. <clears throat> he spent his career making a living as the administrator of a nonprofit just to feed his family. You know, Megan, you've worked in professional theater. <clears throat> there aren't a lot of jobs. Right. You might be one of the lucky ones to become an artistic director of, a, of an equity theater, but there aren't a lot of jobs. So now that he's in retirement, He had circled back to his passion of writing plays, and he'd been writing his whole life. He wrote a play called The Circle. It references Dante's Inferno. And if you read that back in school days, you may recall that Dante had the circles of hell. And as you descended into hell, some circles were far worse than others based on how heinous your sins were. So he wrote this play, which is Michael DeFrancesco's imagination of what happens when a priest didn't escape prosecution. Listen to these words, Jerry, you're an attorney, you know this, based on statute of limitations. Because so many of these Catholic priests escaped prosecution because the damn archdiocese protected the information to save their own asses and the priest never got referred to prosecutors in time to pay their dues, correct? 
Yes. That's how it went down. Today, if there is a hint of this kind of scandal, the archdiocese coming all the way from the Pope in Rome are required by church policy and procedure to immediately contact the Pope. Right. Immediately. That didn't happen. So Michael DeFrancesco wrote this play called The Circle in which he imagines that they catch somebody in time before the statute of limitations has run out and the dude gets prosecuted, convicted, and sent to prison. The circle starts the day this man enters prison. And that's the play. The play is about his, if you will, hell on earth. Now, I have volunteered, you guys know this, as a teacher in a prison in Kentucky where people have done nasty-ass crimes. Yes, these kinds of crimes. Literally, these kinds of crimes. And they are, they're tough places. And the hell is about, I can't imagine hell being worse than being locked up for 20, 10, 30 years in a prison and having to deal with what they have to deal with. So the circle is about that. So Michael sent this play to some places in Cincinnati, starting, you know, low-hanging fruit, where he's from, Cincinnati. The Cincinnati Playwrights Initiative read it and said, hell yes. And they did what they do. And Megan, you may know uh, of this uh, process called a Mm -hmm. table read. And that's what's happening tonight at a place called the Aronoff Theater in Cincinnati. In the Fifth Third Theater, Aronoff has, what, Megan, three theaters in it? Yeah, the Fifth Third's like the Black Box Theater, I think. That's what I was going to say. It's like like a Black Box. Like 400. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're doing a table read tonight. There's a theater in Los Angeles that has agreed to take a look at it. It does the same kind of thing. Uh, the Ensemble Theater has it in Cincinnati. That's an equity theater in their hands now. And so I'm bringing it up. You, you can't quite read it yet and better yet see it. But I wanted us to be one of the early uh, you know, entities that try to get this on uh, people's radar. I don't know of another play in America. There could be, but I don't know of it that deals with this imagination, what happens to a priest who goes to prison for abusing children. And, and it's a, it's a playwright's yeah. imagination. So sure. uh, literally, yeah. uh, you know, it's not based on a true story. It's uh, how art works. What was the name of that? I've seen the movie proof. about the Boston Globe. Oh, uh, not proof. Um, uh, it, shoot. Investigation or something like that, because there it's a team of investigative reporters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I, and they latch onto it almost like Watergate, right? They get mm-hmm. the bone yeah, in their yeah. mouth, man. They won't let go, and it just yeah. keeps. It, it's like it was a powerful, powerful, movie. very powerful, and, movie. and very true. Yeah. And it's similar to what the story I told. I was just a little player on a radio station. Well, no, in Cincinnati. Gee, I didn't. 
I didn't, I, I've never heard that before. Yeah, you were long gone. From, you, you weren't obviously at Channel 5 at the time. Was that Spotlight? Is that the yeah. name of it? Spotlight. Spotlight. That's the you movie. Got it. Because they were called, their their team of reporters were called, that that team, that was the Boston Globe's fancy name for their investigative team, the Spotlight Unit. Yep. And if folks, you, yep. if our listeners, if you guys haven't uh, seen that movie, you've got to <laughs> look it up. And then uh, keep a lookout for the circle. We're hoping it gets traction. And well, I'm all pissed off at the church anyway. This week, I was told I was selfish because I didn't have kids. So you know, we'll just oh, tack this on as well. Oh no, it's worse. <laughs> you fit it perfectly. I exactly thought of you because I'm a regular <laughs> listener who, to Catholic radio. Who told no, you that? The Pope. What? Who told the Pope? The, I'm selfish. Oh no, Jerry, it's worse. That he did, said. Did he call you directly? <laughs> <laughs> he he uh, lambasted uh, families uh, who don't have children out of uh-huh. selfishness and substitute, right, Megan, pets, yep. dogs and cats <laughs> for kids. And uh, Megan yeah, has I Colonel Fitzsimmons, her Fitz dog. Fitzwilliam. Colonel Fitzwilliam. Fitzwilliam. <laughs> oh, man. And I have a stepdaughter, but yeah, I didn't have kids. So I thought that was, um, huh. You know, coming thanks for a you. lot, church. Thanks, They're church. They're coming for you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Oh, man. I'm selfish. Hey, me. by the way, what, one last thing we'll bring Cole uh, Cheney on. Uh, I thought of Jerry Megan the other day because I did something that he's done many times, something he, I've probably learned it from him. And that is just get in your damn car and do a road trip. And so what, on <laughs> Friday... I get in my car with my wife, Bonnie, and we drive eh, nearly a thousand miles to Orlando, Florida. I drop her off at my daughter and son-in-law's and I hung out with them all for the afternoon. Then I got back in my car and turned around and drove straight back to basically Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. And as I was driving through the night, I thought, you know, Springer always talks about sleeping in rest stops because he has an SUV and he puts his back seat down. He always carries a sleeping bag and a sleeping pad. So I just pulled into a rest stop. Don't don't believe any of this. Yeah, he pulls over in the Bentley to take a little nap at the pilot. I I think that happens. (laughs) Hey, Megan. Yeah, yeah, right. No, because I have, and the reason I haven't done that is my driver gets tired. And you want to know something? And Megan, he TTs in a little bottle too. Hey, hey, Jared, but here's the thing. Oh my God. Oh, no, I know. Here's the thing. Oh, Josh, that's, and and secondly, it's a big bottle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, we are not having this conversation, gentlemen. Well, just one last thing. I'm not here. One last thing. Testing, one, two, one, two. Somebody get Jerry. (laughs) I did that, and I had. I, I, what's crazy is I get home. I thought, well, that was kind of fun. Well, you, you really wait a second. You you drove down. This isn't a joke. I know you drove uh, down to Orlando, Orlando, turned you know, around to see the kids. I didn't even spend the night in Orlando. I was there for probably five hours, got back in my car and drove to Macon outside of Macon, Georgia, pulled over at yeah. a rest stop. Uh, What's wrong with you? Wrong you need a couple of bucks for a hotel room. No. Motel six, you, no rooms at Motel Six where you usually where stay. You, you know why I didn't do that? Uh, Omicron. 
I thought, I'm not even going to bother with going in there and being around people, blah, 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 hallways, blah, blah, blah. So I just. uh, So you thought it's safer Mm -hmm. for a man of your age, no offense, to pull over, sleep in your car by (laughs) yourself at a rest stop. A man of his age. You thought yeah. that was smarter. What, what, why, do you think that's n- why do you think that's because not that's how safe? Peop- it's not safe. Which what? Okay, Gene, if I came to you, I used to drive a lot for a living. If yeah. I came to you, Gene, and said, yeah, I'm going to pull over at this rest stop here and no, just catch 50 winks. No, because, don't you do that. Okay. Why am I not allowed to do that? Why is it oh, you're unsafe allowed for you. me? Oh, hey, you want to know oh, something? Male hey, chauvinist. Hey, you want to know the Thank truth? You, you want to know the truth? I felt totally safe. And frankly, and I'm not joking, you should too. Yeah, yeah I would never do that. And I would never recommend that you do that either. Gene. You know what? You know what I did? And I, I pulled into oh, this rest if, stop. If Lindsay, if Lindsay was driving, you would tell Lindsay, you're nuts. Don't do yeah, that. I would, you I would. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably would. And, and, you know, she, about Megan's age, yeah, I probably would. No, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did th- this rest stop. Uh, the key is, you know, there's a uh, restroom there because you stop. Oh, and that's clean. It, that's that's, that's clean. protecting you from the virus. There yes. was a sign that said McDonald's uh, three miles up the road. In other words, the next exit. So that t- took care of breakfast. Uh, drive-through, by the way, pancakes, stack of pancakes. They were delicious. Uh, large black coffee and large orange juice was great. I but hate you. I pulled over into the area where all the trucks are parked. They're all sleeping. Yeah. What the hell, man? Yeah. I locked the doors. I went to sleep. Sure. Good night. Okay. And none of them had COVID. No. No. And yeah, that was no, it, man. We're not, was okay, not so we're around. not going to start a new segment here, traveling with Gene, how not to cross <laughs> yeah. the I country. I thought it was great. Oh but, but, but I learned it from my buddy, Jerry Springer, who does this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For Pete's sakes. Well, I'm glad you're safe, Gene. Please don't do that again. For crying out loud, do I have to call Bonnie? Uh, she said, uh, when I told her I was doing that, she said, is that safe? And I said... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it is. And it seemed interesting. And she didn't. And she said, darn. No, she said, go for it. <laughs> go for it. She doesn't care. She, she, nobody cares. She doesn't care. Well, right. Dr. Cole. Moving right along. Speaking, oh, my God, Cole, you're going to have to save us here. Uh, welcome back to Cole Chaney. It's nice to have you back with us this week, sir. Yeah, How you been? So the last time Cole was with us, um, he shared with us a absolutely beautiful song called Charlene about his grandparents and uh, his stylings are, Oh, that was a great oh, it was song. fantastic. Oh, that was um, kind of Appalachian stylings, very simple, um, just fantastic. So we can't wait to hear what you have for us this evening. Um, but you had mentioned when we talked last time, Cole, that, you know, uh, Oh brother, where art thou was one of your influences in addition to some of your other personal music, uh, tastes, mm-hmm. what other types of influences brought you to this sound? Um, well, obviously, as we discussed, uh, bluegrass, I'm a very big fan of uh, bluegrass and I'm still, uh, you know, since I moved to Lexington and started hanging out with uh, a lot of legit bluegrassers i've you know been introduced to some better music than i was listening to before that because i didn't really know uh what i was listening to but um outside of that i mean i listened to a lot of alternative rock like 90s grunge uh, a lot of 70s stuff 
I mean, really, I'll listen to anything. If it's decent, it really doesn't matter. That's awesome. Well, like we said last time, we um, we heard Charlie. Now, tonight, we have Cool Shooter. Is that is is that the same type of genre? Tell me a little bit about this song and what we can expect. Uh, well, I figured uh, since y'all like the last one, we keep it on the grandparents' theme. I always say if it wasn't for uh, my grandparents, I wouldn't have anything interesting to write about. <laughs> um, they they definitely have lived a very um, interesting life. I don't think that I could ever, no matter how far this music thing goes for me, I don't think I could ever live uh, as interesting a life as they have, as fulfilling of a life as they have anyway. But um, uh, Coal Shooter, I wrote that about the stories that my papa Chuck used to tell me about working in the Johnson County, Kentucky coal mines as a young man with, uh, with his father, uh, Russell, and his uh, older brother, James and uh that was kind of he was working out of necessity to try to keep the family afloat you know it was him uh his father and mother uh, his five brothers and uh his two sisters living in one house and uh you know they were a pretty poor family and so it was just you know back then folks just did what they had to do and that was it was just because that's what you did back then and i just think that's a very admirable uh admirable thing to do and so you know, I, I was just trying to think of how I could pay respect to that. And so I wrote, just wrote a song about it, you know. And this is Cole Shooter. I'm sorry, I'm, I mispronounced it. Not Cool Shooter, Cole Shooter. Cole Shooter, yeah. So basically what shooting coal is, or what it was back then anyway, obviously things have gotten a lot safer now. You know, MSHA, uh, which is a mining safety program. But back then, what he was doing was going back in the mines and he was a smaller guy. So they, they would send him back into the smaller spaces and he would go back in there and drill holes all around the, these coal rooms, which, you know, might've been three foot tall, maybe. Uh, and they would drop sticks of dynamite down in these holes and they would stagger the lengths of the fuses uh, on these sticks of dynamite so that they could light them one by one all the way around the room with a torch and then run back out of the mine before they start blowing up. It's like Deadwood. Like that's the same type of stuff that they do when we're watching turn of the century 18. Oh my God. Holy cow. It was was wild stuff. And wow. Okay. So uh, tonight we have for you Cole Shooter by Cole Chaney. Grateful at the time, but 
There was many a boy that had done the same And they never come out alive You better run, cold shooter, run Run away as fast as you can And when you get to the end of the tunnel Just keep on running, my friend Cause this ain't no kind of life That a young man should live If you can run faster than gunpowder burns You might see the light again captures doing like daddy has even though they knew that the next bite down could surely be their last ain't got no time to be scared no with dynamite in your hand don't hesitate boy cause if you slip up son you're as good as dead better run cold shooter as you can and when you get to the end of the tunnel just keep on running my friend cause this ain't no kind of life that a young man should live if you can run faster than gunpowder burns you might see the light again have to ask when did you know like how did you start telling those stories you grew up hearing them from your grandparents but what what caused you to put pen to paper and start writing these stories as music because they are absolutely gorgeous 
thank you. Um, well, uh, in, yeah. you know, in my family, stories are kind of like currency. And when everybody gets together, that's, that's what we do is, you know, we get when the whole family gets together, especially is we all sit around and listen to stories or, you know, we retell stories that that family friends have told or stuff like that. And, you know, I always uh, wanted to be able to tell like the best story and, you know, not really anybody in my family plays music. And so that was kind of my way of uh, trying to set my stuff, you know, apart from the way everybody else told theirs. Well, beautiful legacy. And what a wonderful way to keep those stories alive. Wow. And keep telling beautiful. Them. That one is so vivid. Um, I, I think I said, um, I said the wrong Sears. I think I was thinking of hell on wheels, yeah. you know, when you're watching them blow up the mountainsides and stuff like that. That's what it reminded yeah. me of. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention Coles. I was coming, I've told this goofy story, true story about driving from down to Florida and back. And as I'm coming back on Sunday, driving through Tennessee and Kentucky, eventually getting home while coming through Kentucky, and I'm bouncing around and picking up some radio stuff. And I got a station out of Western Kentucky University, their public, you know, a PBS station. And the DJ was doing a coal mining theme and was playing a lot, lot of That's songs cool. uh, that had to do with coal mining. Yeah. And um, this song that you wrote, and Jerry Springer, you and I go back to the days of Dark as a Dungeon. It's it's maybe the quintessential coal mining song. Sixteen tons. Yeah. Ernie Ford was another one. Dark as a dungeon yeah. was a little darker. Told the story a little bit more yeah. clearly yeah. of what the dangers were. And by the way, Cole, do you know you know a songwriter by the name of Billy Ed Wheeler? I don't believe I do. All right. Well, a song I'd like you to check out because I think you would like it a lot is called Coal Tattoo. Okay. And it refers to when you get hit by coal in a collapse, which is a common mm -hmm. danger in a mine, it leaves a mark on your head, which never goes away. It's sort yeah. of uh, a permanent bruise. Yeah. And that's called a coal tattoo in the industry. So I learned. I learned it's just from listening to storytellers. Yeah. I never worked in a mine. My family never worked in mines. But... Uh, Man, your song, and I just really tuned into that. Jerry Springer and I came from, because we're much older than Megan, but we came from the 60s, and we were both uh, independent of one another, but we formed our friendship around the time we were both in folk groups okay. coming out of college or in college. Yeah. And these are the songs, because, Megan, on your point, they were story songs, and I was personally, and I know you were too, Jerry, very drawn to those songs as well as that sound. I hung out in a bar called the Ken Mill in Cincinnati yeah. uh, in a pretty sketchy neighborhood, and they were all coal miners who had come north to work at in the auto uh, factories and moved their families to the cities. Some results weren't so good, by the way making that transition and that bar called yeah. the ken mill had all these appalachian folk who came there just to play music mm -hmm. and to think about those those the sounds took them back in their memories to the hollers yeah so man i'm a huge fan of yours i'd never heard of you before you, casey campbell introduced us to you 
And I'm I'm on your yep. music now, dude. Yeah. I think you are damn good. You speak to me for what it's worth. I appreciate that, man. Music works. I mean, when you're singing, you can see mm-hmm. the you can see the story, yeah. which is the best storytelling there is. It's so visual. I mean, it's it, yeah. it's it's not yeah. just gee, yeah. let's get a couple of words that rhyme. Well, he feels it's it like, too. Like, and you, you know, see they, the guy they, running out of the mind about. This kind of music yeah. is three chords in the truth. Yeah. And it resonates. Now you you're you had more than three chords in yeah, that song. Yeah, right? that four. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and at least one minor in there. But yeah, yeah. three chords in the truth, man. Yeah. It resonates. Yeah. Cole, you have some new fans and we oh, apologize. Yeah. But, but <laughs> I, I got that C, G, and D seven. I nailed those yeah. three. And then came the truth part, and I just fell apart. Well, tell us where we can hear more of okay. your music because you clearly have some new fans here. We, uh, yeah, that was fantastic, and we can't wait to hear. Yeah, more from you can you. find it on any of your streaming services. You know, your Apple Music, your Spotify, your Amazon, any of that stuff. Uh, YouTube, uh, where you just pulled that video up from, was a Red Barn session that I did uh, a little over a year ago. I believe it was last September that we did that. And uh, come to a show. Yeah, this is Cole Cheney. C-O-L-E-C-H-A-N-E-Y. Yeah. Check him out. Check out his other stuff. Follow him and make sure while you're doing that, you swing by and give us a few likes. Keep us on air so that we can continue bringing you music like Cole here. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. I can't wait to hear more from you and see where your career is going. Um, thanks for spending some time with us. And uh, we're going to have Casey Campbell and Jerry Springer take us out on Down by the Riverside. Well, I'm on late Heavy low down by the riverside, down by the riverside, way down, down by the riverside. I'm gonna lay down my heavy load, y'all. Down by the riverside, sit down by the riverside. I ain't gonna study anymore no more. You've been listening to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery. Recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside.